It's the pinnacle of amateur sports. In less than one month, those athletes will be competing for their country in the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. Now, considering Canada's sour relationship with China, should this country be sending athletes? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The Winter Olympics come every four years and with the nations cheering on their athletes who put everything on the line for the opportunity to compete. Canada has joined the US, UK, Australia and New Zealand in a diplomatic boycott of these games. Athletes will still be able to compete. Now for more than two years, Canada and China relations were tattered due to hostage diplomacy of the two Michaels after Huawei exec Meng Wazhou was detained in Vancouver for the US. China has responded to the boycott with a promise of retaliation, although it's unknown what is referring. To make the situation even more complex, add in the Omicron variant spreading around the world. Now, our poll question asks you, should Canada be sending athletes to the Beijing Winter Olympics? Yes, no, or unsure? You can log on and vote right now. Coming up on the show, John Rowe of the Angus Reid Institute will join us to talk about how Canadians feel about the subject and whether there are other concerns as well. Bruce Kidd former Canadian Olympian from the 1964 Games will join us for the athlete's perspective. And former Canadian diplomat to China, Charles Burton, will join us. But first, I am pleased to be joined by Elliot Tepper, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Norma Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And Elliot, have Canada-China relations ever been this bad? Not in modern times. Canada really pioneered bringing China into the fold when we recognized in 1970, uh, the People's Republic of China as the holder of the Security Council seat. And therefore, we broke relations with the nationalists who were actually on Taiwan at that point. We shifted our attention from Taiwan to the mainland. We did maintain an economic and cultural office, <laughs> unofficially a diplomatic office uh, in, uh, in Taipei. And they have, of course, a very active office here. But we have made that decision, uh, really led the way. Other countries, including the US, followed shortly thereafter. The formula that we mentioned, you know, we took note of, without saying yes or no, China's position regarding Taiwan as, and, uh, as a breakaway province from, from China's view. So we took note of it, but we didn't comment on it. And since then, uh, there were high hopes, as you may recall, just, um, just I mean, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, of course did all this he, he was a great fan of china and we have deep long-standing relations through missionaries in particular with the people of china but this government of china that we currently are dealing with is different so we now have a situation since uh 2007 that things have evolved merely a thousand days plus <laughs> before the taking of the hostages before the meng Wanzhou, the issue emerged, there were hopes that there would even be a huge new opening to China with the free trade agreement. That, of course, now seems like mm -hmm. an ancient memory. You know, the prime minister feels Jinping's China today is, is vastly, been, vastly different from just five years ago. Yes. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, how has it changed? Well, it's changed enormously. Uh, Deng, Deng Xiaoping, remember the big the big names we remember here in the West is the founder of the People's Republic of China, Mao Zedong. Uh, I was there when I picked up a little red book. I was, should have brought it up as a prop today. Uh, I was there in 74. Uh, Mao Zedong really created the country as we know it, but then led it into chaos. 
that chaos was overcome by a successor, Deng Xiaoping, the other major name we know. And his advice was, hide your strength, bide your time. Yes, we'll grow stronger, but we're not going to scare people with it. Uh, the big change is Xi Jinping has come to power. And since then, he has abandoned that policy. We are a superpower. We're going to tell everybody we're a superpower. Wolf warrior diplomacy is going to be our, um, our uh, method of operating around the world. He has very strong support in the, in the Chinese uh, tradition in terms of the communists coming to power after, as they put it, a century of humiliation. And now they're into a period of national rejuvenation. And they're saying we have achieved national rejuvenation under the wise leadership of the party and me as the center of the party. Uh, so therefore, next year, you should uh, cement me as unprecedentedly a third term, basically president for life, leader for life, leader of the party. So he has really changed things a lot. He's saying no more hide and bide. We're here. You know, uh, this has led to diplomatic boycotts by uh, Canada, US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Would you consider those a half measure? Do they work? Or is this just, you know, those countries trying to save little face saying that they've done something, but they really haven't done anything? Uh, well, Emmanuel uh, Macron of France has said these are, I forget his exact word, irrelevant, insignificant, unimportant, and he plans to go personally. Uh, they hope to host the next round of Olympics. So the, uh, it's, it's a, a way to say we don't approve of you, but at the same time, let our athletes go ahead and compete. And our athletes are, as, as you'll hear in a moment from uh, mm -hmm. another person, laser focused on the Olympics themselves. The Chinese have put their prestige on the line that they can hold a, uh, an Olympics in the middle of a Omicron crisis, Delta crisis, and they have a zero, zero COVID crisis uh, policy. They, they're they're going to stamp out COVID in their, in their, uh, all around, and there's a bubble created. So the legitimacy of the party and the pride of the party is tied up with a successful second Olympics. Only eight years ago, they, they had an Olympics that was the coming out party. Apparently nobody, you'll have to take this up with your sports expert, apparently nobody really wanted to do this again. So they said, we'll do it uh, and we'll do it right. But much more important, and this is uh, something I'd like to underline, he would like this Olympics to be a success. Uh, the party's prestige is on the line but it's far less important to him than the big ticket item, which is coming up uh, at the end of next year, the 20th Party Congress, which will then cement him into this position, assuming he can maintain the legitimacy and stability, uh, legitimacy through stability of the party, he will then have this unprecedented role as a modern Chinese leader. Now, Canada has a new, a new foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, and, and do you think fresh eyes will bring a, a new perspective to the relationship? I don't think so. This is, a, this is all foreign policy, ultimately, is the foreign policy of the government of Canada. That means the prime minister and the PMO will be formulating this. She has announced that in her mandate letter, which I've read, uh, she's correct. There's now going to be the announcement of a new Indo-Pacific policy. There was a great scoop by the Globe and Mail, let's finally find out what that is, three and a half billion dollars. There will be a change in Canadian policy toward Asia, not China, Asia, by calling it an Indo-Pacific policy. This was uh, uh, created as a concept by the Prime Minister of Japan going to India in 2007, addressing parliament and saying, the confluence of two oceans, 
India on the one side of China and Japan on the other side of China are now going to work together. And we are now going to join that international consensus, changing our own vocabulary and trying to work with all of Asia. So Canada can now say, this isn't an anti-China policy, it is, but we are not anti-China, we are pro-Asia and diversifying our trade, basically for the very first time, having a framework to take Asia far more seriously than it has in the past as a result of the emergence of China. Elliot, I wanna thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. There's always a lot to talk about when it comes to China. Elliot Tapper is a distinguished senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Now, someone who has been part of Canada's diplomatic corps in China is Charles Burton. He's as well, he's associate professor at Brock University, and he joins us now. And Charles, China calls the diplomatic boycott a farce. Do you, do you, do you feel it is a farce? Uh, no, I don't think it's a farce. I think it's a largely symbolic measure. You know, chances are we wouldn't have had any ministers in uh, China for the Olympics because of the COVID restrictions imposed by the government of China. And uh, aside from which, at the Tokyo Olympics, we only send our minister of sport. So, you know, it's not like we were expecting to have a row of senior cabinet ministers making nice with the standing committee of the Politburo while watching the figure skating or something. But on the other hand, it sends out a signal that our government is not prepared for business as usual with a regime which is uh, engaged in such repugnant behavior, both domestically in terms of the genocidal policies towards Turkic Muslims and Hong Kong and internationally in terms of what China has been doing in, in, in the third world, enabling corruption and its territorial expansion into the international waters of the South China Sea. So, you know, I, I think it was a good thing to do uh, I, of course, I would have preferred that we figured out some way to get the Olympics out of China altogether and hold it, you know, maybe in Vancouver and Seattle or something. But, um, you know, that definitely isn't happening. And so we'll just have to try our best with, you know, what some Canadian NGOs are referring to as the genocide Olympics of uh, 2022. I wonder, should Canada and allies have gone further, maybe an all out boycott and send the message? I, I, you know, I think that that would have been the best option under the circumstances. But, you know, there's a lot of money involved in putting on an Olympics. And, uh, of course, for a lot of the athletes, um, you know, one, one Olympics is their only opportunity to demonstrate their world-class skills. So one can see why it's still, it's still ongoing. But I think if we'd taken it a bit more seriously when we first started to get reports of of the genocidal policies, which is already four years ago that it was confirmed um, that that was going on, that, you know, it would have been great if the international community had got together and made it clear to the International Olympic Committee that they had to find an alternative venue for these Olympics. Aside from which, you know, you wonder really if it's still viable to have the Olympics all in one country at a time. You know, they're very expensive, they lose money, require building a lot of new athletic facilities, which often, um, you know, go into disuse once the games are over. Maybe we're better off having an Olympic uh, meet that is held in many countries at the same time using existing facilities, because it seems aside from, you know, dictatorships that want to make a showpiece out of these money losing games, most democratic countries are just not prepared to host because of the cost implications. 
you know, considering the media in China is government controlled, would anything like a boycott or diplomatic boycott even register there? Because it probably wouldn't get to air. I, I, the Chinese have been complaining about it, but mostly in media directed uh, externally. Of course, Chinese people will see that there are some leaders who go there and a lot of uh, respected nations who are absent. There's also the question of whether a significant portion of our athletes will boycott the opening and closing ceremonies. So, you know, if it appears on Chinese TV, it, you know, these Olympics are largely about the Chinese domestic audience uh, gaining a sense of legitimacy of the authoritarian one-party rule of the Chinese Communist Party. If they saw in the opening ceremonies that the flags were coming in, but there were very few athletes following them, that would certainly send a signal to the Chinese people that there's something seriously wrong in relations between China and uh, the democratic West. You know, I, I I think back to 2008 and the Beijing Summer Games, and then we look at here in 2022. What's what's the difference for you in, in looking at uh, the, those two different games? Well, of course, we weren't aware of uh, of the the genocide aspect, and China's policy towards Hong Kong was still maintaining its international agreement to uphold the freedoms and uh, and democratic or the democratic promise of Hong Kong. The Chinese government had promised to allow the Hong Kong people to elect their own chief executive. They subsequently reneged on that. And so, and also the Chinese government in the lead up to those Olympics made a lot of commitments about democratization and uh, extension of human rights in, in into China, which of course have not been fulfilled. So there seemed to be a notion that maybe the, the Olympics in China shining the the light of the world on that country would have a beneficial effect to seeing the Chinese government better respect norms of human rights and and democratic governance. Um, I think the fact that that after the Olympics were over, the Chinese government started to become more repressive and less uh, permissive about even discussion of things like independence judiciaries and uh, and uh, free and fair elections that uh, sets a bad precedent for this particular Olympics that you know we can't expect anything good to come out of it. What we're really doing is is affirming a regime that uh, that the world regards as uh, as a dangerous uh, uh, player in global affairs and one which doesn't respect the fundamental rights of its citizens that are guaranteed um, by the uh, by its membership in the United Nations. You know, the Huawei decision is uh, still a big one for Canada and, and China, and it's still on the table. Why? Why is it taking so long? Well, I think it's because our government, you know, there's there are key elements in our government um, who are supported by uh, large Canadian firms who have important uh, business relationships with Chinese communist business networks that don't want to alienate the Chinese regime in any way. And so, you know, our government has said that that they're still considering the decision. Well, I mean, we've been looking at whether the Huawei 5G poses a, a threat to Canadian security, um, you know, by enabling the Chinese regime to uh, have knowledge of critical infrastructure that that would be controlled by 5G or the ability to access databases uh, of information that would be of use to Chinese espionage. Um, you know, we've been considering that for three years. Uh, all of our allies have decided that the Huawei 5G is an unacceptable risk to their national security. 
despite the telecommunication companies wanting to use that technology because it's priced much cheaper than the competitors, Nokia and Ericsson and Samsung and so on. So the fact that Canada is not making a decision on this troubles me a great deal. And I think it causes our, our allies to feel that Canada is a weak link in the Five Eyes Intelligence Consortium and uh, in, in, you know, in NATO and our other um, important security alliances with like-minded nations. There's a fear that, you know, how can you share uh, intelligence with Canada if there's a prospect that the Chinese regime could uh, obtain that critical information, which would be uh, damaging to all. And the United States has made it crystal clear to Canada that if we go with the Huawei 5G, that this will affect their ability to share uh, critical intelligence with us. And that's very bad news for Canada because we're a net importer of intelligence. You know, we need that information to protect our Arctic and, and uh, southern border. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just puzzling to me as to why the government is deferring this decision and really makes me wonder if, you know, on a Friday afternoon before Christmas, they'll announce that they've looked into it and we will be allowing the Huawei 5G to, to go ahead. You know, uh, the diplomatic boycott, uh, China obviously not happy about that. Could China retaliate economically to Canada and have an impact? I think that, um, you know, China has tried economic retaliation with Australia um, directly related to uh, the Australian government's demand that there be a, a international impartial investigation of the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but it wasn't very successful. China started to have shortages of things like coal and iron ore that they uh, largely sourced out of Australia. And uh, the Australians, um, to their credit, were able to find alternative markets uh, for these uh, export commodities. You know, it's global market for these things. So if China is sourcing from somewhere else, um, you know, it opens up space for countries like Canada and Australia to, to sell elsewhere. Now, in the case of Canada, you know, unlike Australia, which sends about a third of its commodity exports to the People's Republic of China, Canada is down about 4% of our commodity exports going to China. So I think a lot of Canadians feel that we have a very strong dependence on uh, our exports to China, and therefore we should play nicer with them on ignoring concerns about human rights and other issues, security issues, because, you know, our primary interest in China should be promoting Canadian prosperity through trade and investment. But it's not actually true. And in fact, China sells into Canada three times as much as, as we sell to them. So in theory, we have more leverage. So I, I think the Chinese government, after their failure of their attempt to use economic coercion on Australia probably would not engage in that on Canada. Aside from which, you know, there's so many countries that are joining us in the diplomatic boycott that if China does it with one, they have to do it with the others. And that really would be damaging to their economy, which is already suffering enormously from their extreme lockdown measures to try and uh, eliminate the risk of the um, Omicron uh, variant in that country. Charles, I want to thank you for joining us. It's great to speak with you. Charles Burton is a former member of the Canadian Diplomatic Corps, as well as a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. At the middle of this riddle are the people for who politics take a backseat. 
The athletes in 1980 and 1984, the games were boycotted by nations, which broke the hearts of athletes whom had been training for years for that opportunity. Bruce Kidd's a former Canadian Olympic from the 1964 Games in Japan, as well professor of sport and public policy at the University of Toronto, and his new memoir, A Runner's Journey, looking at politics and sports. And Bruce Kidd joins us right now. And Bruce is an amateur athlete. What did it mean to you to go to the Olympics? Well, in the 1960s, uh, that was the uh, most special event on the entire calendar over a four-year period. There wasn't uh, the schedule of World Cups and alternate high-profile competitions that there are now. It was the, the most important above all competitions, the competition that we had. And I would say for many of the Winter Olympic athletes, that's the case today. Uh, it, um, it's not the only major competition, but it's so much more important than all the others. Was it everything, the experience at the Olympics, was it everything you expected? Yes, it was. Um, I, I would say the 1964 Olympics, even though I didn't win the races I wanted to win, changed my life. Um, it, uh, it, it taught me about the world and the world of sport. Uh, the the power of sport, uh, the, um, the 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 opportunity to engage in uh, a non English speaking world, it really opened up so many doors to me that that in fact it probably changed my life. If you read my recent memoir, I argue that if it wasn't for the '64 Olympics, I probably would have been a lawyer uh, instead because of what I saw in Tokyo and Japan in 1964. I gradually got into sports studies and forged a career that way. In your eyes, is a diplomatic boycott a suitable response by Canada, the US, Australia, considering their, their ongoing conflicts with China? Actually, I think it does. I mean, uh, we're, we're facing many contradictions. Uh, most of us are horrified by the genocide against the Uyghurs. Uh, and the other repressive actions of the Chinese state in recent years in Hong Kong, the threats against Taiwan, uh, the treatment of, of the Tibetans and, and so on. Uh, but international sport and Olympic sport uh, is, is intended to reach out to all people, regardless of the human rights uh, practiced or, or not practiced or not respected in, in different countries. Uh, and, and so how do you express your, uh, your um, horror about what the Chinese are doing and at the same time go to an Olympic Games that is, is being hosted by the International Olympic Committee in, in China? And I think it's not a perfect solution, but I think the diplomatic boycott in which nation states express their their condemnation, uh, but athletes can still compete and hopefully can still express their views uh, in Beijing is a kind of middle ground. But we're clearly feeling our our way uh, our, our way on this um, as human rights become more important. Uh, how do we continue to compete against uh, against people or in uh, countries? where uh, repression is, um, is, is more the norm. I mean, if I was an athlete, 
but I want to compete in Texas right now with uh, some of the recent legislation banning abortion, uh, rolling back uh, civil rights in voting and so on and so forth. These are difficult questions that uh, the sports world is, is struggling to grapple with. And in the meantime, uh, as the clock is ticking towards the Winter Olympics, the diplomatic boycott is a it, it, it's not a bad way to go. You know, this obviously leaves the athletes in the middle. Some feel it should be an all-out boycott. Others feel just the diplomat, diplomatic boycott because obviously they've put a, you know their time, sweat, tears, everything, four years in, into this. Are the athletes paying attention to the rhetoric around this right now? If they are. They are. And they have been for, for two or three years. Uh, I'm not directly involved with the Athletes Advisory Commission of the Canadian Olympic Committee, but I know people who are on that body. And I know that as we speak, they are discussing this. Uh, they have uh, they've educated themselves about the issues. Uh, they're taking it very seriously. You know, the IOC claims it doesn't want the Olympic Games to be politicized. But have you know, when you think back to 1964, were they politicized for you? Or is this just something that's been growing over the last little while? You know, there were several countries that did not participate in 1964 because of, of international politics. I think um, I, 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 I'm disappointed by the formulation that politics and sport do not mix. Uh, an earlier generation of IOC presidents, particularly Michael Kalanen and Juan Antonio Sammermanch, would say, of course, politics is part of international sport, but we need to minimize their negative effect so that people from different countries can still compete and communicate peacefully and get to know each other as a way of reducing world tensions. That's that's the overarching purpose of, of, of the Olympics. But to deny that there's no politics in it, that's, that's, that's naive. And I'm sorry that uh, Thomas Bach has fallen back into this um, this old, old formulation. Bruce, I want to thank you for joining us. Ed, uh, thank you for your attention. Bruce Kidd's a professor of sport and public policy at the University of Toronto, as well as a former Canadian Olympian from the 1964 Olympics and the author of the memoir, A Runner's Journey. Canadians are watching the issue unfold and have several concerns about a diplomatic boycott. John Rose, a research associate with the Angus Reid Institute, and he joins us now. And John, what is the opinion of China by Canadians? Well, um, we, we ask Canadians, uh, in November about uh, what they thought uh, Canada should do coming up to the Olympics. And uh, most people were, like the majority were supporting uh, a diplomatic boycott, which is what ended up happening after we released the polling. Uh, but most people like, don't really wanna keep athletes home. Uh, only two in five su supported uh, athlete boycott of the Olympic games, um, which yeah, I, I, there are kind of, I guess there's still time for that to happen, but uh, that's not what Canadians kind of support. They were more supportive of the diplomatic boycott. And in terms of the diplomatic boycott, did they feel it was going to, you know, send the message, get the job done, or was it uh, just saying something but not impacting the athletes at all? Well, and that's the thing. Like we we asked uh, whether or not people believe that there's anything Canada can do to actually change China's behavior on things like this. And most Canadians, seven in ten 
uh, don't believe that anything Canada do can actually impact what China does, uh, what uh, the government in Beijing does. And it, yeah, it's kind of interesting that I guess like even though people do want to take actions against China, such as like the diplomatic boycott, they are kind of wary whether or not it will have an effect. And and in, in the effect, there, there's concerns about the economy, is there not? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, polling that we released last week, uh, uh, earlier this month, uh, is that they're worried that if they take any actions against China, the majority of Canadians are worried that there's going to be economic consequences. So we asked or uh, we put out a statement saying, I'm, a, I'm worried about the economic consequences of standing up to China and whether or not Canadians agreed or disagree with that statement. And 58% uh, said that they agree that they're worried that if we take actions against China, that there will be consequences for us economically. Now, do Canadians want less China influence on our economy? That's and that's another question we asked in our polls too, is that whether or not uh, we can trade with China less and most Canadians, three and five, uh, they want to like reduce the amount of trade that we do with China. And uh, we asked them kind of follow, we followed that up with another question with those people that do want to trade less with China, whether or not they believe that's realistic. And most people that think that we can or that want to trade less with China actually believe that we can do that without affecting our economy, I guess, by making up those trades elsewhere. Um, and that's actually something that the Trudeau government has come out this week and said that they're looking to try to foster relationships kind of around the Pacific and around that region that aren't with China as maybe kind of a way to kind of disentangle us a little bit with the Chinese economically. Uh, kind of the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. So, and Canadians, I think it's, it's interesting. So one of the poll questions that we've asked consistently is whether or not, like, what should we prioritize in our relationship with China, which is uh, we give them a trade-off of between uh, economics things, like things like trade, uh, investment opportunities, and human rights and the rule of law. And consistently over the last three or four years, most Canadians, and right now it's three quarters, want to uh, prioritize human rights and the rule of law when we're dealing with our relationship with, with Beijing. Uh, but it's kind of one of those things where whether or not it's it's tough because obviously our our economy that's $100 billion worth of imports and exports every year. So that is a, like a significant portion of our trade. China is our second largest trading partner. So. It is tough, and I think that's why you also see that Keynes are somewhat conflicted on it. They they want to trade with China less, but they are worried that what what will happen with our economy if we start taking those kind of steps towards that. And it, it, interesting how you know you're, you're sort of getting torn in, in, in both both ways here. You know, you, you you want less influence, but then you're worried about your you know the bottom line. How, how do you how do you jive the two? Well, I, I think it's like Keynes are both. I I think they they kind of realize, I guess, what, what both those aspects are. Like, it's like, it's one of those difficult things, which I think the, even uh, like the Trudeau government, I think is trying to figure out is that how do you kind of approach this where like most Canadians uh, recognize and see that like much like the parliament say that the, there is parliament identified a genocide happening in um in China, and was part of the reasons why Trudeau said that they wanted to avoid sending diplomats to the Olympics. Canadians agree with that, uh, but they also, I guess, they see that economic relationship, and it's it's hard for them to, I guess, find like look for past that and say, okay, well, how do we kind of start doing that? Whereas, like, I mean, if you go on Amazon and buy things off Amazon, like a lot of the things you end up buying off there is from China, right? So it's yeah. it's kind of difficult to 
I, I think it's kind of hard to imagine what a world would look like if we weren't importing $77 billion worth of stuff from China every year. John, I want to thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. John Rose, a research associate with the Angus Reid Institute. Our poll question asks, should Canada be sending athletes to the Beijing Winter Olympics? Yes, no, or unsure? You can log on and vote right now. I want to thank our guest today, Elliot Tepper of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Former Canadian diplomat Charles Burton. Bruce Kidd, former Canadian Olympian at the 1964 Games in Japan, as well as professor of sport and public policy at the University of Toronto. And of course, John Rowe at the Angus Reid Institute. And I want to thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.